This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The world's largest tech firms were on the defensive today in Ottawa. Canada hosted a committee of politicians from nearly a dozen countries, which got the chance to grill representatives from Facebook, Google, and Twitter about how they manage data, how they handle the spread of misinformation, and whether they're a potential threat to democracy. The committee also heard from observers of the industry who are worried about what they're seeing. The debate over big data, privacy, and its implications for democracy came to Ottawa last week as the so-called International Grand Committee brought together the world's biggest tech companies, politicians from around the world, and leading thinkers for three days of hearings. The International Grand Committee hearing, the second of its kind, was led by the House of Commons Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics who were joined by elected officials from the UK, Germany, Ireland, Singapore, and many other countries. In the hot seat were the tech and social media companies, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon. The discussion often became contentious. Does Facebook still defend the, the concept that it doesn't have to be truthful well, to sir, be on I, your platform? I, I understand what you're getting at. I do think that if, I, if you'll permit me, the, the way I would like to maybe um, talk about it a bit... Yes or no is, would work. Is, yes or no would work. Is we... Um, that's why we're here. We would welcome basic safe... So this is a ba- learning experience no, for you? To, to welcome basics... <laughs> Mr. Kent... Basic safe. Uh, ba- I, I ask that with respect. We would welcome basics. We would welcome basic standards that lawmakers can impose on the platform about what should go up and what should come down. The controversy didn't stop with what the company said, but also who said it. The decision of top executives such as Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg to give the entire hearing a miss sparked widespread anger from across the political spectrum. It's really important for Facebook and the other data giants to realize that their contempt of democracies, their contempt of citizen rights, uh, their belief that because they're you know billionaire frat boys from Silicon Valley, they're they're above all of us little people, that they they're running out of road. And if they continue to show contempt for our democracies, our democracies will push back. Hours after the hearings concluded, I sat down with Nathaniel Erskine Smith a Liberal MP from the Toronto riding of Beaches East York and vice chair of the committee to discuss the intensive three days, the prospect of global reforms, and what comes next for the International Grand Committee. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so we are just a few hours after the conclusion of three days of what I assume was, I'm exhausted. was pretty grueling <laughs> hearings for the for the Grand Committee, which made for, I think, really good television, or at least streaming for those that were following. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and certainly has attracted a lot of attention. And, and I want to get your immediate thoughts, given that it's only been a few hours since it concluded. But first, for those that weren't following along, can you just explain what the Grand Committee is? Sure. So the Grand Committee, the word grand, by the way, uh, this would only have been created by UK parliamentarians. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an international committee made up of more than 10 parliaments from around the world who are all focused on similar issues related to democracy, big data, and privacy. And this really was born out of an initial cooperation between our Canadian committee and the UK committee, where we were both going down this rabbit hole of Cambridge Analytica. And there was 
I communicated first with Christopher Wiley, who connected me with the UK chair, Damien Collins. We had direct interactions to assist one another in our investigations. And out of that, we went to a roundtable of parliamentarians in Washington in July of last year and started this conversation. We had Bob Zimmer, our conservative chair, was there with me in Washington, and he and Damien then said, what else can we do? What can we do next? And Damien at the time was adamant that Mark Zuckerberg needed to attend before the UK Parliament. He'd blown them off. And so the initial thought was, well, it's much more likely that we get a serious witness like that if we join forces. And so it started out with Canada and the UK and then ballooned to 10 plus parliaments. We had an initial meeting with Richard Allen, a VP of Global Policy for Facebook in London in uh, November, December of last year. And then so this is the second major meeting. And it really is one to raise awareness and to hold the platforms accountable for some of their bad practices and, and negligence, I would say. And two, it's to sort of build on this sense of global cooperation when we have problems that are global in nature because data so freely flows across borders and companies are global in, in their reach. How do we work as parliamentarians across countries to, to have a global solution? It's interesting. Now, I want to get into some of the, that ability to cooperate on some of these issues and who shows up and who doesn't show up, sure. even when you come together. But what are some of your immediate thoughts? How, how do you feel the last few days, which of course included the platforms, if not the senior executives, along with yep. uh, any number of different experts as well? So one, I, thought, I think it was really important that we expanded beyond Facebook and we had Facebook, Google, Twitter on one panel together, and then we had Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft on another panel together. We also had people who have been writing and thinking about this a great deal from Taylor Owen, Ben Scott, Heidi Twork, and Shoshana Zuboff. So there was a lot of there was a lot of good thinking brought to bear at the outset that we could sort of draw from and then put questions to the platforms and big data companies. It was frustrating, obviously, at times. I, there were an initial frustration just because very senior people did not attend when I think they ought to have attended also frustrating some of the answers that were given. But I, I would also say I have reasons for optimism when I see all of these companies now say we need stronger privacy data protections in a way that if you asked me three years ago, they simply weren't saying that they were pushing back against it. They were lobbying against the GDPR. That's true. Now they're all saying GDPR or potentially GDPR plus. We have an acknowledgement that they are all moderating content and there needs to be public accountability to that content moderation. And it's different answers probably depending upon the jurisdiction, but there needs to be some public facing cooperation between these companies and they can't be policing this all themselves on their own. We had an acknowledgement that I wasn't expecting actually, that there should be corporate responsibility for the algorithmic impacts uh, or the impacts of the algorithms that, that they employ. So there were the beginnings, I think, of a, a pretty fruitful conversation, and then some additional frustrations where they blew off, I think, a very useful conversation on competition, didn't really take consumer protections completely to heart, I don't think. And obviously, in the end, they didn't send people who were really going to be able to make decisions for their companies. Yeah, and so, and that's... Uh that last point certainly attracted a lot of attention, I know, from you and from, from a lot of other people, uh, given that particularly the senior executives at Facebook, Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, didn't show up. Uh, but, of course, that's true for a number of the yeah. larger companies true as well. For, right. It was true for all the companies. I think Twitter took it the most seriously, actually, from 
the people that they sent. Interestingly, though, particularly with respect to Facebook, because they had failed to attend before the previous committee in the UK, we had taken the exceptional measure of issuing a summons. And more than that, I think just as a matter of basic honesty, if you're the CEO of a company and two months ago on March 30th, you write, I care about privacy, I care about competition, I care about protecting elections and addressing harmful content online, I want to discuss these issues with lawmakers from around the world, and then you have 10 countries represented in a forum discussing these very issues and you don't even make an effort and there's no explanation as to why he couldn't attend. I mean, Tim Cook got back to us and said he, he had another engagement and, and you know he was interested in this conversation. Whether or not that's true, that's at least some engagement. So I found that pretty frustrating in the end. Yeah. So does that ultimately, in a sense, undermine the the kind of message that the companies are bringing? I mean, you talked about that they've shifted or moved somewhat in terms of the a growing acceptance of privacy regulation, perhaps algorithmic transparency sure. and the like. But still, they're still not at the point that once once you leave the United States, the senior executives are willing to show up. In, I think, it, it, yeah, it, in a way, it ultimately comes down to trust. And we had Kevin Chan from Facebook before, before our committee well over a year ago dealing with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and then he acknowledged there's a loss of trust here and we need to rebuild that trust. I don't think it goes a long way to rebuilding that trust when there are, in some cases, platitudes, and in some cases, even a serious effort to engage in a policy conversation, but no effort to engage at a very senior level. Yeah, it, it is striking. They do appear at some of those type of executives do appear in the United States. The U.S. is not represented on your committee. Yeah. Um, although there were U.S. representatives that appeared. Are there concerns that this ultimately becomes a rest of the world elected officials versus U.S. company type of dynamic? Or at least what's the impact of not having the U.S. government at the table for these discussions? Yeah, I hope it doesn't become that. Uh, I don't think we need the U.S. government, as it were, but it certainly would have been helpful to have someone like Mark Warner or uh, Rubio or Amy Klobuchar, three people who had participated in, a, in the parliamentary roundtable in Washington last July. Uh, I don't know. I, I was not corresponding with those folks in the way that the clerk was, so I don't know why it was the case that, that it was declined, but I think you make a good point that in the end, if you want to take these if you want to tackle these issues in a very serious way, if you don't have a body like the EU doing it with you or a body uh, a country like the U.S. doing it with you, it can be difficult to do. And Canada and the U.K. are an incredibly important start. We had Germany here. That was incredibly important. Ireland is excellent on these issues as well. But it, does it help that you're adding Morocco to the conversation if you're not adding some of the bigger players? Maybe not. We did have France when we were in... Uh, the UK and we had Mexico here so I, I think there are substantive you know there are serious jurisdictions that are if you look at Germany in particular Germany has done a lot of different very interesting things there was a German MEP that brought the GDPR forward and their own laws dealing with harmful content online their German competition authority has said some very interesting things so I, I think it was helpful to have them there so yes we would like the US a long way of saying of course we want the US there but I think it was was positive regardless yeah no and certainly highlight countries where who've been doing some really innovative things how do you feel Canada fits within that dynamic given that the many of the countries you just mentioned 
have been more aggressive in terms both of some of their regulatory right. or regulatory approaches or their laws, and certainly the enforcement powers that their enforcement agencies, say the Privacy Commissioner or Data Protection Commissioners have, differs from what we have here in Canada. So my bias is to say, as a parliamentarian sitting on the Privacy Committee, I think our Privacy Committee has been very strong on these issues over I the last three true. years. So as parliamentarians, we've been quite good at, uh, at pushing these issues forward. As a parliament overall, and certainly as a government, I, I think we've come late to the uh, to this issue in a, in a serious way. I'm hardened by the fact that there's now a digital charter saying here are some principles, and they include addressing competition issues, uh, addressing privacy and data protection in a more serious way. But interestingly, I was in Brussels, uh, I forget how many weeks ago, and I met with the EU data protection supervisor and a number of people who are who have thought and are working on privacy issues there and they all spoke very highly of, of academics here in Canada, of past privacy commissioners here in Canada who have in many ways laid the intellectual groundwork for the GDPR. So the EU looks to can Canadian ideas and Canada doesn't look to Canadian <laughs> ideas. So that, that, it has been a bit frustrating but I will say now I think we're at a place where it's likely that all three parties run on privacy and digital rights platforms and there's a strong likelihood that whoever forms government after October, that we're likely to see these issues continue in some earnest. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, one of the things that was notable, and I think I, I saw someone comment on it on Twitter during the course of the hearing, is that it's tough to find many issues on Parliament Hill where everybody seems to be in agreement. Yeah, exactly. And this appears to be one of them where uh, certainly all three of the major parties participating in this process seem to be coming at these issues from the same perspective. Yeah, someone said to me, they couldn't tell which party we represented until they looked us up, which I think is a testament to the nonpartisan nature of our work. Yeah, I think that's, that's notable, and in some ways it, it does augur well, or at least better, I suppose, for yeah. the digital charter. One of the criticisms of the charter is, is you know, it comes pretty late in the mandate. Yeah, and that's fair. That's so then fair the question person. becomes, well, what happens post-election? But if you've got all, all the parties kind of singing from roughly the same songbook on many of these issues, there's some promise that whoever forms government will see this as an issue they need to take forward. I think that's right, and I think much depends upon what each party puts in the platform to build out that mandate uh, post-election. I was... I say I'm hardened by the digital charter because it's been such a battle. I, I introduced a bill last June to give the Privacy Commissioner greater powers and powers looking at fines, proactive audits, and making orders. And to me, this is the no-brainer. We recommended this at our committee twice now. This has been many Privacy Commissioners have said we need these powers. Other countries have them. They, they work. The lack of engagement I got a year ago versus the really serious engagement that's happening now with respect to the digital charter and looking ahead, I'm, I think it's very positive and, and I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to see, in the Liberal platform at least, uh, a real effort to address privacy and digital rights issues. Yeah, well that is encouraging and it's, it's clear just as the companies have shifted, that hasn't happened by accident. It's sure. happened because committees like yours have called attention to this and the public is genuinely interested and I think increasingly yep. concerned about some of these issues. Yeah, half the battle at committees like ours is raising public awareness. Yeah, and one can see that and you guys have done a done a good job. I mean certainly the 
the reports that you put up get referenced in the digital charter background. They get yeah. referenced by people repeatedly as sort of providing the foundation for potential reforms. I now know at least one person read our committee reports. <laughs> there you go. I think there's probably there, I think there's no <laughs> doubt more than one. Now, now the, the committee just now, these hearings dealt with a whole number of pretty interesting issues, some of them really challenging. I thought we might touch on a couple. Sure. Um, right off the bat is this challenge on the content side, before we get to the privacy side, of what expectations we have of companies like Facebook, but of course, and include others to play a moderating role over their content. And the example that was used was the Nancy Pelosi video. And you had some members, uh, some elected officials, who were basically why are you why did you not take this down and they said youtube took it down you haven't taken it down and facebook's response was well we have it's not that we haven't done anything but no we haven't removed it what are some of your thoughts about how we navigate what is an incredible clearly incredibly challenging issue on content that one can make the case causes harm but at the same time isn't clear that it's unlawful and the dividing line between content like that and other parody type videos can be really tough to navigate so a couple things. One, I think it is more helpful for a committee like ours, an, an international committee like ours, to focus on areas where we can make real inroads and there isn't the same level of disagreement. So I think it was Taylor Owen who made the point that there are some easy issues that you can tackle and there are some difficult issues and harmful content on its own is really difficult. And then <laughs> we immediately went to this Pelosi video that is actually a really difficult example, even in the realm of the already difficult harmful content conversation. There are two tracks at which we should regulate, or one track at which we regulate content, which is where it's illegal, and the second track is where platforms will obviously have to look to our public rules, but we'll also have community standards that they will want to enforce um, as private companies. And so, is that Pelosi video illegal? No. Does it violate their community standards? If it's up, then no. Um, and the extent to which it has violated their community standards, they've taken action by downgrading it and uh, providing more context, I don't, you know, I think perhaps they could do a bit of a better job of framing that context. It's not just when you share it, but when you, you perhaps view it. But my view, which is consistent with committee recommendations that we've made, where it's obviously illegal content that is being hosted, there are really easy categories. You take child porn or terrorism, but if it's obviously illegal and it's flagged for companies and they don't take it down within a timely way, I'm perfectly comfortable imposing financial sanctions. Germany has a rule like this, and whether it's that exact set of rules or something modeled on those rules, I'm, I'm comfortable with that level of enforcement uh, when you're balancing freedom of expression and, uh, and protecting harms, protecting against harms. Hate speech, if it's at the criminal level of hate speech, which is already a really high bar, I'm okay with that too, uh, where we're forcing companies to take down criminal hate speech or criminal harassment, criminal threats, uh, obviously illegal content. Um, where it's a grayer area, I think a public appeal mechanism to determine the illegality would, I would be more comfortable, making sure there's some public accountability to the content decisions mm -hmm. and we're not outsourcing this to the platforms, I would be more comfortable with. Uh, certainly where if Facebook is determining their community standards, okay, there's no public appeal as far as it goes. But if they are making a decision not based on their community standards but public law, surely there should be some judicial review uh, as far as that goes. So I, 
I would be more confident on the harmful conversation and harmful content side if we focused on clearly illegal content and how we address that first, because that even can be quite hard just from an enforcement perspective. It can. I mean, I think your your response highlights how much nuance there has to be on this. I mean, there, there sometimes feels like there's a tendency to say, you know, you broke it, you bought it, fix yeah. it, and take action. But it's clearly not that simple, especially when you're dealing with a wide range of content, some of which you, we can understand why people object to it, but it's lawful content. Okay, so what, what do you think about this? I've been turning over my head this notion. So there are two factors when we look at content in a way. There's the nature of the content, and if it's harmful, you know, I mentioned child porn terrorism, obviously take it down. If it's obviously illegal content, we can talk about liability rules, even if they're, they're otherwise in a previous life, they could they could look at Safe Harbor and go, we're just a host, we're not right. promoting this content. We say, oh, actually, we're gonna chip away at Safe Harbor where it's obvious, obviously illegal. And the EU is even now looking at doing that with respect to some copyright, I'm not wholly familiar, but I know there's there's now a, a, a sort of a path towards chipping away at Safe Harbor more and more depending upon the jurisdiction. But at least I understand we're, we're not gonna allow Safe Harbor for obviously illegal content because of the nature of the content. Then there's the act of participation in the promotion of the content. And if they're not a mere host, but they are actively promoting the content through a use of the recommendation function on YouTube or the newsfeed algorithm, more people are going to see that. There will be more impressions because of their active participation. And there, I don't know what the answer is, but there it does seem to me there is another path for liability. And section eight of these arcane broadcasting rules in Canada broadcasters can't broadcast false and misleading news. I don't know whether that should be a rule that we have or not, but it is a rule we have. And if they're employing an algorithm that increases impressions, in theory, I don't really know what, why they get treated differently from broadcasting content then. I don't know if, uh, if you well, thought that. Thought yeah, that. well, I mean, the starting point would be, would be to ask whether or not they're, in fact, the broadcaster. Yeah, and, which and I, don't they, they, I don't think they are. But I no, think, I don't think they are. But I think they, there's no reason that you wouldn't take rules that apply to other categories and say, if you're doing something similar, we're going to deem you to be platforms, and there are going to be a new set of rules on platforms. Well, I certainly think we can look to our existing rules to identify a little bit what the contours are around potential liability. And, and another thing, of course, that differ, makes Canada differ from some of the other countries that were around the table today is we've got a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, sure. which I think invariably means that some that our analysis is going to differ from a country we that, that may We would not be able side. to pass the online falsehoods bill that Singapore was referencing. <laughs> no, we wouldn't have that. I don't, <laughs> no, I'm not, not sure that we'd have what we're starting to see in Australia and right. even the UK around around harms. Um, I think that uh, we have stronger protections around freedom of expression. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right around clear-cut criminal content. And, and from everything that I've heard from some of those large platforms, they agree as well. I mean, yeah. Facebook will tell you that they, they're able to remove terrorist-related content before it ever appears the vast majority of the time, and the rest come down quite quickly, and child yeah. porn has always been viewed as yeah. as different from other sorts of content. But even in hate, as you mentioned, that, you know, our, 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 our history around that and the cases that have gone up to Supreme Court highlight how challenging it sometimes can be around some of these issues. And I know, that, I, mean, I, mean, I reference this Section 8, but I, I think it's rarely, if ever, been used uh, this applying a law against false and misleading, the broadcasting of false and misleading news. And probably that's because there are standards councils that broadcasters are a part of. The same with our news media. They have their own internal ethics and and, uh, and 
the standards councils. And so I think uh, Heidi Twork uh, was making the point that building that ethos would be a really positive development. And that makes more sense to me in some ways as a first step than trying to figure out how do we create or debate even should we be debating liability or rules that would take down a Pelosi video that would open up a whole can of worms about content control that we probably don't want to have. It would, and it, you know, the response that Facebook would likely raise, and they, I think they did reference their efforts around developing some sort of oversight system. There are questions as to whether or not it will be global in nature. Yeah. Is it local? Because, of course, many of these are localized questions, both yeah, in terms exactly. of the law and what people are exactly. comfortable with. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done. I guess what's changed is there is discussion about the need to do some of that work. Though, you know what's interesting? Uh, Facebook, at the last session in the UK, Richard Allen said something. He said, well, obviously, if it crosses the line, we take it down. If it's obviously illegal, we take it down. And he said, but maybe we shouldn't promote it if it's right up against that line, because there's been a, enough written now where the algorithm and the newsfeed, it doesn't matter what reaction it gets. If it gets reactions, then uh, then it will be more easily uh, seen and promoted. And so YouTube, similarly, in 2016, there was an engineer that said, oh, maybe we shouldn't promote borderline content and recommend borderline content. And in January of this year, they've now said, we're not gonna do it. And I don't know if, if you have any views of this, so it's not about requiring companies to take things down, but it might be useful to find a way to change the incentive structure where something is clearly false and misleading that if we are to think about the algorithms being employed more in broadcasting terms, is there room, and maybe there isn't, I don't know, but is there room to say, how do we change the incentive structure so that there's not a profit motive for, and rather than a penalty, there's more of a disgorgement. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, though. Yeah, although one of the things that I liked about the digital charter was that it did put algorithmic transparency yeah. on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And so the fact that we, we are, I think, recognizing that these are choices that are being made, and perhaps at least the starting point is to say we need to know more about how those choices are being made, and yeah, and, right. and and that, that may ultimately lead to greater accountability yep. uh, for the choices that are embedded within some of those algorithms. Yeah, I, that is a place I'm much more comfortable with. So I, when we talk about speech and harmful content, if it's not obviously illegal and you get into these conversations even about how do we hold companies responsible for the algorithms that they are employing, it, it's much easier as a starting point to say, let's make sure that there is a public-facing risk assessment. So we understand that if YouTube is recommending videos we might like to see, that's a very positive benefit. But if they are recommending far-right nationalist videos after certain content that is, you know, if they recommend Alex Jones videos two, two billion times, that's not illegal but that's probably a negative externality of, of, their, uh, of their algorithm. And that should be public facing in a way so that we can properly assess it and, and hold these companies to account. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the conversations moved in this direction. I think you also, at one point in time, I think it was you who asked Google about scanning of emails yeah, and yeah. looking at some, of, at, at some of that content. We had others talking about banning personalized advertising. We'd even got others talking about essentially banning or putting a hold on social media altogether. Yeah, that was, you know, which was a, li a little more intense of a recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, the, wh what does that say? Are, are we now at the point where, if not talking about banning technologies, at least talking about getting under the hood a little bit in terms of how some of this technology works yeah, and, trying, and marrying tech 
mirroring the legislative regulatory side with how the technology functions. Yeah, I think it, you're absolutely right that it's about getting under the hood. And I would say it's about getting under the hood and about assessing how we can take existing first principles and other areas of regulation that have worked offline. How do we make sure these are fit for purpose online? And so to your point about banning certain things, we have consumer protection laws and we protect people in a couple of different ways. One, to require them to opt into certain, uh, you know, I, if I consent to, uh, a, I have to sign a contract, there's consent there, sure. Uh, but in a consumer, in a consumer uh, context, consent sometimes isn't enough because if I buy the phone, uh, if I buy my iPhone, I don't have to read the terms and conditions. I don't have to know that there's an implied warranty of merchantability. Just is there because we don't want a situation where consumers are quickly signing things and not reading things and then liable for the things that they've signed. Um, they're busy with their lives. They shouldn't have to read contracts for everything that they purchase. Why are we suggesting that they should read contracts for every app that they purchase? Is is, is an, I think a useful conversation to have. Often consents that are explicit go a long way. I think the the next question is, are they sufficient in full, and are there certain practices? So, for example, I think I put two, but maybe there are others, and I, and and maybe I'm wrong about these two. I don't know, but it occurs to me that nobody needs to read my emails to target me for advertising. We could just take that off the table. It occurs to me that no one under a certain age should be have personalized profiles made up of them for targeting purposes. We would never allow companies to do that offline. Why are we allowing them to do it online? So I think there are certain categories that probably we could take off the table completely and then have a consent model for everything else and explicit opt-in consents largely. Do you have any thoughts about how we how we do that from a legal regulatory perspective? I mean, we've seen how hard it is, at least in our country, but it's probably true for many others, to even get broad-based privacy reforms, yeah. much less delving into these kinds of issues. And what, what you're putting on the table, I think, is really interesting and I think intuitively sounds right in terms of identifying certain kinds of behavior that we would see as unacceptable in one area and ought to be unacceptable in the yeah. online space too. Do we have right now the kind of system or model in place that allows that to be operationalized? Probably not. And, and so maybe if we're looking at wins, maybe the answer is the GDPR modeled opt-in consents and for any secondary use or, or anything that isn't within the one's reasonable expectations uh, in signing up for the app, there has to be explicit opt-in consents, which is I think part of a, a you know, uh, there's a consensus, I think, among uh, folks like you, very smart privacy people uh, on, the, on that. And so maybe that's where you start. And then people look at other practices and say, where consensus is built up to say, well, actually, this should be taken off the table. Probably, though, for kids, I think, I think that's an easy one, actually, to just take that off the table entirely. Um, and I would flip it. And, and I think maybe this should be flipped in other ways, too, but at least for kids. The onus shouldn't be on us to prove that kids should be off the table. It should be uh, the onus on the companies. Show us the positive benefits for targeting kids in some way, and then maybe we'll let you do it. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the positive benefit? That's fair. I mean, certainly in the privacy realm, the U.S. doesn't have much in the way of broad-based privacy rules, but it does for kids exactly. in, in a sense. And politically, a a I'll tell you, that's a, in the same way we worked in a very nonpartisan way to establish some of these recommendations so far, 
that would be the very that would be the easiest thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. One other issue that I just wanted to touch on that you raised and I think you indicated you didn't get a great response on was the competition side of the story, which is also gaining yeah. a lot of traction. What are some of your thoughts about the the growing momentum in many ways to say we'll break up these companies or at least use you look to competition law, antitrust law as a mechanism to, in a sense, divide up a little bit these very large companies from the different lines of business that where I think there is a feeling that part of the problem is when they merge these different lines of business together, that's where some of the, the harm may occur. So I have spoken to people far smarter than me on this, and I, I think that they are right that in the same way we protect consumers on price, and that was one of the foundational uh, elements of competition laws to protect consumers on price, we should also protect consumers on privacy. And so mergers and acquisition decisions, that should be a, a key consideration, I think, of competition regulators when they, when they look at acquisitions. So what is the public interest in Facebook acquiring Instagram? Is there a great utility to us? Not particularly. Is there a downside to us? Not on price, but yeah, on privacy, actually. I think there, there is a real one where you had a major co competitor that is the closest competitor. Now Zuckerberg can't name a competitor when he, when he attends at Congress, but Instagram was the competitor. And we know that because if they weren't, if they weren't uh, one company now, Facebook is losing users to Instagram. And not having that level of competition and that ability to move from one platform to another it protects my privacy a little bit more and uh, maybe provides a safer space for, for conversation, whatever the case might be. But uh, at least on privacy, that uh, that I think without question should be a consideration for our competition regulators. I know that competition authorities in Canada are thinking about this too because there's a, a data forum uh, that the competition commissioner has held uh, at the National Arts Center here. The other thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around, though, on competition law, I don't know if you have any views on this, is not about privacy, but about just big data and innovation. And it occurs to me, I asked Amazon this today, but I think the same applies to Facebook. If we use the Amazon example, they are basically taking all of the purchase decisions of consumers and adding that all up and saying, well, our consumers are really buying iPhone chargers. Let's get in the business of iPhone chargers. That seems really a, a massive amount of market power that I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but our competition regulators should be looking at it. When Facebook acquires third-party apps, which they tend to do, are they sharing the third-party app data that they have? Are they commingling that with the data that they hold about people, and then they're able to make much better decisions about the growth of those apps and which one is likely to grow the fastest and which one is, is likely to be the best. Again, that seems, if they are doing that, that would be of great concern to me if I was a competition regulator. So there are lots of um, existing abuse of dominance and, and sort of unfair uh, competition rules as we have them. I think they could be playing a much stronger role in the space. Yeah, no, I think there is a, there's been an awakening on some of those issues. And just like we're talking much more about algorithmic transparency and talking about some of the different kind of regulatory solutions, clearly that discussion is going to continue. And it's interesting, uh, it's now the conversation is, has moved not from do, debating whether we should do it, although the companies denied that we should do it, of course they did, but uh, on competition law at least, 
it, the, but the real conversations move to operationalizing the ideas. So algorithmic transparency and explainability in the GDPR is accepted. It's more just a question of how do you effectively make it a reality. And I think similarly with competition law, I think competition authorities now recognize we have to address privacy and we have to address big data. How do we properly do this? Yeah. So. I think that's right. I see the the lights flashing, which tells me that uh, <laughs> I think you're headed for a vote in, in yeah, a few minutes. Probably. So before I let you run, though, um, what next for the Grand Committee? So we will be meeting in Ireland in November. Uh, we is maybe uh, a generous term in the sense that I'm up for a re-election in October, right. and we'll see. Uh, but uh, there, hopefully there will be Canadians that then. Hopefully I'll be there. And hopefully Charlie and Bob will be there as well. And it'll continue, it'll be up to Ireland in the same way we framed the debate here and added more ideas to the conversation than the first meeting. It'll be up to Ireland to decide where we take this next. And I think my view has generally been initially accountability for companies was required. They were, they're now at the point where the public cares, they understand they need to act in many ways. You know, we, we constantly give them a hard time and, you know, grandstand a little, but the companies are really trying to act in many ways, whether it's election interference or, you know, improving privacy rules. They're, they're now saying the right things and doing some of the right things. And I think it's about continuing to have as much of a constructive conversation as possible at this point to how do we get serious cooperation from legislators around the world, but with companies around the world. So, yeah. I mean, and that, that's sort of, I think that represents a really positive outcome in the privacy world for many years now, there's been a lot of talk about the role that the International Conference of Privacy and Data Protection Data Protection Commissioners plays, where you get kind of that cross-cultural, cross-country discussion around some of these issues. I it's asked about that about to the U.S. Election Commission, uh, Commission because I think what the privacy commissioners around the world do is incredible, and more regulators sh should look to do that. Yeah, it, it, I think it's had a real impact. It's striking to see it happening effectively at, at an elected official level where we get politicians coming <laughs> where together. Where we so rarely do things. It's true, that but having that, impact. having that kind of discussion is really uh, interesting. And I think that yeah. the, you know, the, the effect of getting those different perspectives surely has an impact that you're able to bring back domestically as well when you hear what's happening elsewhere and what some of the perspectives are too. Yeah, and I think it helps move the conversation forward in governments in the end where you have parliamentarians, you mentioned earlier, but the, the fact that it's been nonpartisan, it, the fact that the public now cares more and more and more about these issues, obviously they do. We live our lives increasingly online. We want ourselves and our kids to be protected online. Uh, so I think governments, not just ours, but in the UK, in France is trying to deal with this, Germany has, is ahead of us, but all, all of these, and, and California, when you talk about the US, is not the table, but. Uh, probably, you know, if we're focusing, maybe we should try to tackle uh, getting a, a legislator from California to Ireland because uh, there are jurisdictions in the U.S. that are doing really important work on this too. But uh, I think governments are now seized with this in a really serious way, in a way that they weren't. If you asked me three years ago when we started toiling away on these privacy issues, whether I thought the government was going to do anything, I would have been much more skeptical than I am today. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, thanks so much for joining me on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod or Michael Geist at M Geist. 
You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.